0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM, Channel 132. Welcome. To Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products views our guests are their own and not those of Church affiliates. We're going to have another great show. Professor has been talking about inflation, the Fed, for weeks. We got the Fed meeting. We get his reaction. We're talking with Brent Donnelly, uh, one of my friends and author of a great new book. That We're going to talk to him about his outlook on the markets, his book on trading. Uh, But, Professor, we're going to kick it off with you. What's your read from the Fed? Did it go as expected as you thought? Any any latest thoughts?
2: Yeah. Um... uh... I thought it was it quite interesting and I thought he was pushed there kind of by, uh, the other bank presidents who are seeing a lot more inflation and shortages, uh, than, uh, the official Fed story. I hardly use the word temporary anymore. These shortages, which you know, implied would be uh, temporary in, in uh, the summer, are, if, if anything, are getting worse. Um, and um, uh, as a result, uh, uh, he's still being very deliberate. Uh, they're going to... He, he said it's going to take something big for me not to announce the tapering uh, next meeting, and we plan to end it next summer. Um, he also said in response to a question uh that if the data uh gets more inflationary uh, um we might be forced to speed up the tapering and speeding up the tapering obviously also means bringing uh the the rate increases uh forward uh as you know two more uh uh FOMC members uh, joined the 7 in the uh June meeting to say that um uh you know they they believe that uh, by the end of next year we should uh, start raising rates. Obviously, if we get some bad inflation prints in the next two to three months, uh, you will see even more pressure um, to speed up that agenda.
1: Now we've had some market moves. The perhaps maybe the most interesting market move, maybe the bond move, has been yeah. ticking ticking higher.
2: Yeah, and the bonds have moved up. Uh, 145, I, I think, uh, yeah, uh, 145 on the 10-year was up to 147. So that, that 115 and 135 range has really been broken on the upside. Now, again, uh, you know, we've talked about the, there's huge demand for this bond. I'm not saying it's going to go up a lot. Uh, the Fed it will only be nudged by some bad inflation data. And, you know, that's, you know, we're going to get one before the next meeting and then... Uh, another one before the following meeting, and then take a couple if, if for them to, to maybe nudge into a position. What I worry about is way down the line, not now, but way down the line, that they may overreact um, and, and start tightening uh, too much, saying, oh, my God, we're behind the curve. Now, I've been saying they've been behind the curve for six or nine months, but um, you know, it doesn't mean you slam on the brakes. We know that monetary policy works with long and variable lags, and it can't be fine-tuned. A lot of the inflation that we are going to have over the next year is is already uh, faded in 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 the rise in housing prices and others. Uh, they can't undo what has been done. What they can do is create a glide path of uh, return to two percent inflation. Was going to take a couple of years but after a bulge that we, we have to go through. So um, I think clear sailing pretty much ahead for equities. There still ain't no choice. Now, bonds, if they go up in yield, are, are going to be even worse. Fishing, uh, you know, yields are still going to stay zero. Inflation's going to eat away with that. So equities are still the place to be. But, um, you know, looking down, if we get bad prints in November, October, November, and into December, I think you're going to see some real... Uh, Taper tremors. Not that it's going to happen, but it's going to be uh, speeded up. But until then, equities are the place to be, um, in my opinion.
0: We had a little
1: bit of, of I mean, China still comes way under pressure. Any any views on what's uh, a little bit more volatility there in this week? Any any thoughts on what's happening internationally? there? Yeah. Uh,
2: what could be said? I mean, I I, I think the the Evergrande uh, crisis was. You know, certainly the Monday sell-up was was overdone. I, I, it's not a Lehman moment. I don't even think it's an LTCM moment, uh, long-term capital management, which some people have said was a controlled uh, uh, type of a Fed uh, thing. I, I don't think that this has that. It's well-discounted in the marketplace. There will be some bondholders will take some hits. But um, I, I don't think that that's really going to – you know, the, China's not going to cause contagion. Uh, and certainly into the U.S. markets, I still like credit uh, because I think inflation basically is, is is good for the corporations. But the shortages, the supply—it's going to begin to hurt the the firms. Are going to raise the prices, and they're going to get them in almost all instances. But in a few instances, there's going to be some balking. But on the on on the whole. Um, uh, the, the price increases that I think are going to be passed through because of the shortages are are going to be accepted by consumers grudgingly, but uh, but accepted.
1: Very good, professor. Always great to get your comments to kick us off. Thanks for for joining us.
2: Wonderful. Talk to you next week.
1: We turn the conversation over to one of my friends and a author of a great new book, Alpha Trader, Brent Donnelly. Got to know him the last few years in Maine at one of these uh, interdependence Global Interdependence Group. Groups of led by David Kotak and cam Kotak in the main uh, every every summer of last few summers, Brent, welcome to behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us
0: hey Jeremy. Good to see you
1: Good to see you. Um, maybe you could tell our listeners uh, you recently joined spectra markets uh, and and sort of have a career as a trader and um, and now an author So second second book maybe tell us a little bit. About your background before we get into some of your, your markets views, just how did you get to Spectrum Markets? What is it what is it they do and, and a little bit about your, your history?
0: Sure. Um so I started trading in nineteen ninety-five, been trading mostly currencies um since nineteen ninety five, although I traded the Nasdaq bubble with my own money um for about five years as well. Um and generally I've worked in commercial banks and over the years I've written a lot as well. I started writing in 2004 pretty much every single day. I write about macro, FX. Now I write about crypto and everything. And so over the years, um, the writing has become a bigger and bigger part of my life. And um, so in order to reach a broader audience, um, I recently left Commercial Bank and now started um, a new company called Spectra Markets, which falls under the umbrella of an existing company called Spectra FX, and the idea is to to produce content for for a broad audience, so institutional quality content, but um that's accessible to to everyone
1: and and what it, it, interesting background on on in the currency and, and trading that uh, as you said the nasdaq bubble uh, you tell that story greatly in the book i mean as, uh, as you as you think about people coming into the markets and sort of the trading profession how do you think it's evolved over the years for people coming in and I want to distinguish a lot between traders and sort of longer term investors I want to talk a little bit about how you see that but what sure. what what's some of your as you as you see that evolve over your career what's that's been like
0: so anyone that's read uh, reminiscences of a stock operator uh, knows there's nothing new under the sun so Many of the things that we're seeing now from retail uh, were very similar to or are very similar to 1999. So, you know, they're called apes now. We were called SOS bandits back in the day. SOS was the system that we traded on. And, you know, I had a system called the underground trader, and, you know, we were all bandits trying to take advantage of the, the inefficiencies in the market. So I think the idea that this is something radically new happening um, is not correct. It's different. You know, each time is different. You know, the cliché is that history rhymes, but it doesn't repeat. This is rhyming to 1999 in some ways. Um, and certainly the retail explosion is very similar in in just like the look and feel and and wildness of it. Um, but the I guess the big difference um, is that there's so much different... Um, there's so many different tools now that people are using. So the expression of how it's working is very different. For example, in 99, 2000 era, um, not a lot of people were trading options. Uh, most day traders were simply trading headlines and, and trading whatever was going on on CNBC and that kind of thing. Now um, there's a lot more access to leverage. Um, and the, So the activity and the calls in, in the really popular stocks, for example, Um, is something that's unique now. But in general, I would say that, uh, you know, a lot of people made a lot of money in those years and a lot of people are making a lot of money right now. And um, I guess one piece of advice I would give people is to be adaptive because one mistake that I made was I kept doing the same strategy in... You know, I was I did really well from '98 to '02, and then when decimalization happened, and you know, obviously at that point the absolute value of the stocks had collapsed. Uh, my trading style didn't work, and I, and so I I kept on doing the same strategy, and eventually, you know, it cost me a lot of money because the regime had changed from a very high volatility, very inefficient regime to something that was much more efficient and and also decimal, decimalized. So um, uh, that's some advice I give in my book, um, is really I think one of the reasons I've survived this long from 1995 to now is that I'm I'm generally, in that case I was not, but I took the lesson and in generally generally I am fairly adaptable and, you know, try to see what the regime is and adapt to that, not be a certain type of trader, because I think that's a mistake people make is like, I'm a breakout trader or, you know, I'm a trend trader. Well, that's great if things are breaking out or if things are trending but it's not great if that's not the regime so um i encourage new traders to uh, to adapt and don't assume that because you killed it in 2020 that you're going to kill it in 2022
1: so interesting uh, in in when you
0: think
1: i i come in from a not a day trader's perspective try to be more you know i trained under seagull so stocks for the long run but you know i do do get involved on in a lot of the day and even Siegel makes a lot of comments on the day-to-day swings and and what's happening for your own I mean you mentioned that you're when you were doing the, the tech bubble it was your own capital as you think about having worked in a professional trading life where your year-to-year profits you talk a lot about the calendar year as very important for thinking about how you add on risk how do you think about managing your own long-term capital versus the day trading type day job
0: oh that's a great question so To me, it's just two completely different things. So trading is a profession where you have an edge and you understand what your edge is and you're extracting money through some series of of inefficiencies that you probably have a pretty good understanding of what those inefficiencies are. Um, investing, like you say, I mean, to me, there's so much evidence from like Charles Ellis from the 1970s was writing about this. Um, and, you know, there's so, all you have to do is Google it. There's so much evidence that shows that passive beats active um, in investing that I, I'm just passive in my investing. I feel like trading and investing are two completely different things. And I'm a big believer in um, sort of a weak form of inefficiency in the market that can be capitalized on. Um, but in the long run, markets are pretty efficient. And, um, and the data proves that, that essentially transaction costs um, and the, the negative compounding effect of transaction costs is such a drag on active investing that, um, I don't believe in it I, as a as a thing for me, anyways. I mean, sure, individuals may have an edge if you have expertise in a particular industry or something. Maybe you can see the horizon better than I can, uh, but I don't think I can. So um, my investments are pretty pretty just you know breaking into buckets and leave it.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating that you have the day job where you're going. In and out, right? Like it, it's sort of a much shorter time horizon, but for the long run, step back, Vanguard, buy and hold uh, kind of kind of investor.
0: You know, I think also there's a sense, a certain amount of mental preservation um, involved as well. Is that I spend so much time thinking about macro and the markets and short-term fluctuations and evolution of the narrative that to then you know. G- spend more time thinking about how I'm going to structure, you know, my portfolio, whether I want to have more uranium or cannabis or whatever, um, just seems like, you know, you only have so so much bandwidth and what are you going to dedicate that bandwidth and what's going to add the most value to you, like financially, but also, you know, from an intellectual or, or like, uh, you know, quality of life point of view. And for me, I spend so much time thinking about markets and macro. That I don't want to then like start thinking about single names and and industry type of analysis. I just don't think I have any edge in that, um, and it's too exhausting to think about doing that.
1: <laughs> I hear you. Um, so it, it, for the you know for where you see the big the big lessons, and you, you sort of go through a lot of the different big things that led to your success, and, and have a lot of a lot of suggestions um, on, on LinkedIn. You posted your twenty one rules for success and and all sorts of mistakes. Um, one of the things you talk a lot about is narratives and understanding the narratives, how it's shifting. I mean, if you were to say some of the narratives you're watching closely today, what's the top narratives? I mean, you heard us to start the show on inflation and other things, but what, what are you, what are your narratives you're watching?
0: Sure. So, I mean, there's a few that are kind of interconnected. One is that we're in the weakest seasonal part um, of the year for equities generally from about like mid September to October 9th tends to be a bad period for equities. Um, and the interesting thing is, I'm not a huge believer in seasonality um, because it just doesn't always work that well out of sample. But this seasonality goes w- so far back um, that I'm a believer, and in. interestingly, it's working this year out of sample. And you know, people were writing about it beforehand, so I think that's one narrative is that it's just like a nervy time of the year for stocks. Um, and then you have so, as Professor Siegel said. Uh, I mean, I would be in the same camp. And I think that's consensus that Evergrande is not a, it's not an, a significant explosion type of, of event. Um, but what I think it is, is a symptom of a successful attempt by Chinese policymakers to slow the property market. And that has a lot of implications in a, a world where people are still, you know, half, have one foot in the reflation trade um, post like Biden election and blue wave and all that stuff. You know some of those views are still lingering around and yet you have what is now i think a pretty big deflationary impulse out of china where the property market was a massive part of chinese gdp for the last really 15 20 years and the property market itself um in terms of like percentage of people that own homes is the highest in the world pretty much it's it's a huge huge part of the chinese economy um, as it is many economies but even bigger in china and they're expressly attempting to slow it and kind of let the air out. So to me, it's like a, that's a pretty decent drag. And then you have at the same time approaching peak fiscal in the U.S. or, or past, peak fix, past peak fiscal. Um, and one interesting thing is that the states where benefits have ended, you're seeing like a meaningful drop in, uh, in consumer spending. And so – that's something to watch for going forward is that's like a source of fiscal drag is that just the fiscal taps aren't as aggressive. And then on the monetary side, you could also argue that we're getting past peak monetary, um, stimulus. So you have bank of England was extremely hawkish, um, really surprising people there. Um, the, to me, the, the FOMC meeting was definitely hawkish. You know, they went for pretty much the fastest, uh, like the soonest and fastest schedule for taper, um, and the, the 2024 dot was about as high as anyone thought it could be. So really, on both ends of the spectrum, you got something hawkish, in my opinion. And if you watch Powell, um, much like in June, his body language is very confident on, on the labor market. So I would say the same thing. Like, there's definitely a cohort of people out there that, that um, are concerned about headline payrolls data um, and man out of the workforce and things like that I, I'm really not I just think it's a timing issue and we're going to have some explosive jobs numbers um, the demand for for employees is massive um, and the gap is really wide but with wages going up people going back to school which helps um, kids going back to school helps people find jobs or look for jobs and then the end of benefits is is an incentive for people to find jobs so um, I think that's an interesting part of the narrative too is is the really strong jobs demand but no supply so all that adds up to me to to kind of like a shakier uh, environment for risk assets for for a few weeks um, with the seasonals and then the concern about the deflationary impulse from China being like the most the most important to me uh, but then also the reality that um, central banks are getting more hawkish into what in some countries is kind of a bad inflation story like what you really want is inflation that's spurred by strong growth, and that's that's the more clearly bullish scenario. But what you're getting, say, in, in a country like the U.K., is you're kind of getting something that's more like textbook bad inflation. So it's inflation based on an energy squeeze and, and shortages and not necessarily like an organic uh, and positive inflation. So that makes me a, more negative on, on risky assets for, for like the next month or so um, and then we kind of see it from there. Let me reintroduce
1: our guest. We're talking with Brent Donnelly, president of Spectra Markets, just released a new book, Alpha Trader, talking about his experience as a trader since uh, the 90s and uh, how he's navigated and, and navigated his career. Um So great overview of the the main narratives there, Brent. As you think about, you mentioned you've gone from writing about FX. Now crypto is the latest FX tied into China. I mean, it's certainly, you know, one of these things where they keep banning it. They banned it like 20, 25 times maybe at this point, but it sort of still sends shockwaves. Now you're down 7, 8 percent. Um, what's, and I, I I sort of joked with you before you came on, I saw, I thought you had a crypto punk as your, your Twitter avatar, but <laughs> disappeared. What happened to your crypto punk?
0: Well, you know what happened was, um, so my son uh, is was in a video game development class, and he knows what CryptoPunks are, so he made a CryptoPunk of me, and I was like, oh, dude, that's cool. great. He made it his, uh, in a Sprite development program or whatever in his video game class. So I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I, so I put it as my profile pic, and then unbeknownst to me, a couple people were like, oh, dude, you bought a CryptoPunk. So I put out a poll asking, you know, does this is this like wearing a fake Rolex because I'm like pretending I have a CryptoPunk, which was not my intention. Um, and, you know, 20 percent or 25 percent of the people that responded to the poll were like, yeah, dude, that's pretty bad. Um, so I took it down just uh, out of respect for uh, not not trying to, to be a faker and, and be something that I'm not. Um, I definitely thought it was
1: real. I mean, I, I would, I wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference. Um, but, right.
0: So uh, I wasn't trying to create that impression. So that's why I took it down.
1: So what, what, what is? Um, well, as, as 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 you're you're writing to an institutional audience. I mean, I guess what would you say in your com, in the community you, you, you talk to? Are they trading crypto? Are they in crypto? Where are we on that adoption curve? Um, and and how do you see that?
0: Yeah, I think we're still early. Like, it feels hard to believe because I feel like the media attention on DeFi and crypto is so much larger than the real participation. Like, if you look at your number of OpenSea accounts versus Minecraft accounts or something like that, I mean, that's a very extreme comparison. Um, But, or if you just look at like the number of people that you know talking about it in finance and the number of people actually doing it. Um, I think we're still on the early end um, what's happening is I guess uh, we're in a phase now which is kind of ironic given like the libertarian kind of anti um, Wall Street and you know history of the the Genesis block and all that um, you know anti banks and all that um, sort of tone of the Genesis block uh, code and all that but anyways it's ironic, but now we're in, in a major Wall Street adoption phase where, you know, it's becoming another asset class. And, you know, I can analyze Bitcoin now a lot through the through the lens of the way that I look at G10 currencies. Um, it's in one of those weird buckets where no one knows where to put it. And you can have, you know, 12-hour arguments about the semantics of what's a currency and what isn't. Um, and you can do the same thing. We were doing the same thing with gold in 2000 three or something like that. Those conversations are pretty boring, so I'll stay away from it. But um, I do think it definitely, most people would agree, has some properties of, of safe haven currency type of, of appeal, similar to the way gold does. Um, and to me, it kind of makes sense that you're seeing a pretty major substitution effect out of gold um, and into crypto or in a time when gold should be exploding higher There's too many people doing the same trade through crypto, and so gold's really massively underperforming. And if you look at, um, if if you if you are a person that needs something to be physical and shiny, then that's a certain you know that's a category of investors that are obviously not going to be interested in crypto. Um, And it skews obviously crypto skews younger. But if you just compare them, um, in, not not in backward-looking performance, because obviously Bitcoin crushes everything. Um, but it costs money to hold gold, and you can get a yield from Bitcoin. So if you know, even if they both are flat for the next ten years, um, you're doing a lot better in in something that has a positive yield, and that that effect compounds over years. So. There's all kinds of aspects. I'm actually writing a piece now, um, which I'll probably publish in the next week or two. That's called "What's the optimal?" or This isn't the name of it, but "What's the optimal crypto allocation in an investor's portfolio?" Um, and there's there's just so many issues involved in that question. Um, but I would say we're still in the early stages to answer your question. Early stages of of people really one by one coming over the over the the bridge to the other side to say okay this is a legit asset class and you know i need to at least take a look at it or consider it
1: yeah no this is really interesting and and um I, I think it's, I, I was going to ask you about the take versus gold versus Bitcoin substitution effect, but I, I think it related. Given you know a lot of alpha trader talks about bet sizing and conviction in things, and this is you know where maybe the difference between investing and trading, and how many of the crypto people they're not trading as much. I mean, there's a group that's trading, but they they're you know the the acronym hodler. You got these people who don't trade as much. They just hold their Bitcoin, and and, and now today there's a lot of movement, obviously, but. There is these longer term people. As you think about risk management for this newer generation of people, what are the mistakes you think they're going to make? Should they be hodling? What do you think about the bet size here?
0: Yeah, so that's actually a part of that piece that I'm writing that, that, that I mentioned is that no matter how confident you are, human beings are not good at forecasting. So whatever you think crypto is going to do, you have to leave a window for the fact that you might be wrong, you know, whether like Nassim Taleb thinks it's going to zero and he's hundred percent confident. You know, there's a lot of crypto investors that think it's going to hundred thousand or a million and they're hundred percent confident. No one knows. And anyone that says they're hundred percent confident is just dangerously overconfident. So I would say that you need to factor in the fact that it could go to 100,000 or it could go to zero. There are scenarios, regulatory crackdown scenarios that are pretty much incomprehensible right now, quantum computer attacks, 51% stuff. There are scenarios that are probably extremely improbable, but there are scenarios where crypto or Bitcoin could go to zero or it could go to a million. And I think anyone that says they know otherwise is deluded. So I would say then you factor in how volatile it is um, and, you know, how old you are and, and how risk tolerant you are and whether you have diamond hands, because that's a really important consideration, because if it drops 85 percent and you can sit there, you know, you're probably fine. In, in 2017, you would have obviously been great or 2020, you would have been great. But if you're a little bit risk averse and it drops 70 percent and that's going to trigger you to sell. You know, then you're, you're on the wrong side of, of the trade no matter what happens. And, you know, assets that are this volatile are prone to 50 to 80% drops, and that's just the way it is. So I think people that are massively, massively overweight, um, to me, it's just unnecessary, especially if you have a lot of wealth. Um, you know, someone that has 20 grand in the bank and it's all in crypto, sure, what the heck. But if you have a million dollars or two million dollars of net worth and most of it's in crypto, you got to think about you, know, you only have to get rich once and you, you're already in a good position and think about, I think people with a lot of wealth don't think enough about the, the curve, the money happiness curve. So, you know, if this thing triples, where's that going what's that going to do for your happiness? And if it goes to zero and your wealth, if your wealth goes to zero, what's that going to do for your happiness? Going from zero to a million is a lot different from going from one million to two million. So, I think as you get further out on the wealth curve, it's just even if you think fiat's going to collapse and and you know the reset is coming or whatever, um, you might be wrong. So I, I don't I, I don't think that all in is a correct strategy at any point. And actually, that's kind of one of the things in, in my book is that part of the reason I survived is that I never blew up and. Avoiding Ruin is, you know, the number one. If anything, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners have read Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Um, I'm sure many have. And the interesting thing about that book is that it's sort of um, paraded as this awesome, fun book of all the cool stuff that you do as a trader. Uh, But it's also a cautionary tale about a guy that, you know, killed it in the crash of 29 made $100 million, in, which is an incredible amount of money, and was bankrupt four years later in 1934. So I think avoiding risk of ruin is important, and that goes to your bet size question. And is the correct bet size all my money in crypto? Uh, absolutely not. So I know some people are doing that, but I, I just I think it's totally wrong. Yeah, there's, there's a
1: middle ground when things are up, like, you know, and, and how much do you sell? Do you pay ta- the taxes, the capital gains, all the other things? Brent, you know, we were we talked about the main narratives in the market at the start of the program and and some of the big views. I mean, I think one of the interesting things in your book Alpha Trader, you talked about your history and some of your places where you where you think you made some of your bigger mistakes. Um one of them was trading Abenomics in Japan. Um and and sort of Japan has now become hot. Uh, I don't know, curious on the last few few maybe this quarter it is turning around a bit. Uh any any thoughts on your lessons treating Abenomics and what's going on of late?
0: Yeah, so just to update people in case uh, people aren't following uh, right in the weeds of what's going on, but there's an LDP election, which is um, you know a new leader, potentially for Japan. And one of the candidates, uh, Senai Takaichi, is positioning herself as kind of the next Abenomics. Um, so Abenomics was the 2012 policy decision by... Um, Shinzo Abe to try to stimulate the economy by weakening the currency um, and pretty much by juicing all the markets and and fiscal policy and and that kind of thing. Um, And it was somewhat successful um, from 2012 to to 2015 or so, Um, dollar yen went from 75 to 125, which is a pretty gigantic move. So a lot of people made their careers, I know a few people at different hedge funds that pretty much made their careers on that move, Um, some of the moves. In, inside that were absolutely unbelievable and some of them happen over a very short time where Dalian went up 10 big figures in three days and if you're positioned for that kind of move with some leverage, that's insane amounts of money that could be made. Um, and so because of that, uh, people are very interested in the possibility of Takeichi um, winning the LDP election and it's kind of a complicated process with a couple of runoffs potentially so it's very hard to forecast. And people on the ground in Japan seem to give um, Sinai Takeichi a little bit better chance um, than than people in in the U.S. So it's kind of an interesting setup. And a funny thing about Dalian, if you look at a chart of, of what Dalian did during Abenomics, it tends to explode higher, and then consolidate um, in a triangular formation, then explode higher again out of the triangle. And so we, we are in this series of all these different fractals. Every fractal of, of the dollar-yen chart is is a is a big triangle right now. Um, and then on the 29th of September, you have this takaichi potentially coming in um, and then it, juicing policy again and and with significant, uh, or they call it bold, monetary easing. So there's been a lot of interest in dollar-yen and, and in Japanese assets in general, Um in the last week or so. And of course, that could just fall flat on September 29th, but it's definitely something I think that people should have on their radar uh, because it was such a monstrous move in 2012. Even if you got you know one third of that move, uh, there's a lot of money to be made there. Um, and so there's different ways of participating either through the currency or through the hedged um, ETFs or through uh, the Nikkei or through Nikkei futures. Um, so something for people to watch. And um, just to circle back to your point about, um, you know, part of the reason um, that I wrote the book is I've made a lot of mistakes in my life in trading, and there's lessons that can be learned from some of those. And one mistake is not, this isn't specifically related to Abenomics, but it was kind of, um, is that, it, that I used to make a lot more and that a lot of people make is relying too much on positioning and wanting to go against it all the time and be contrarian. So, It's great to be contrarian at the right times, but if you're contrarian all the time, essentially what happens is you just miss every good trend because, you know, trends tend to, markets, people tend to follow trends. And when trends get a lot of steam, it's going to seem like the market has a a very huge position and that it's, you know, it's consensus. But by trying to go against the consensus all the time, um, you will end up losing a lot of money and missing all the big trades. So what you have to do is just think for yourself. You know, you can go with, the, go with the trend, go with everyone, go against it. You just have to kind of be an independent thinker, uh, which is very hard in the echo chamber of, of financial media and narratives. You know, the, the whole point of financial media generally is to, to, you know, to distill narratives and to sell narratives. So it's hard not to get sucked in, um, but finding that fine balance of being contrarian at times but then also not just being a reflexive contrarian, which just puts you on the wrong side of every trend. And so anyone that had that kind of mentality in 2012 um, didn't have very much fun because you know, it was a massive consensus trade that went massively the right way for three straight years, pretty much. Um, so I just always encourage people: don't be a reflexive contrarian. Just just think think for yourself. Don't follow the trend. Don't fight the tr- don't don't follow the crowd, but don't always fight the crowd either
1: i guess i could I could relate to the comment on the hedge funds you know who made it i I could definitely personally relate um, you know that three years was a great time for us at wisdom treatment that was one of the things i you know i looked at it and said everybody was buying these stocks and buying the currencies and nobody was giving you just the local markets and you know that was one of the things i i had that insight that hey if you could just buy the stocks without the currency that that could be a big deal now i'd say nobody cares you know people are back to betting on these currencies you know if you go to positioning nobody's in japan um, these days so you know i i think it's it's interesting the yen's been been Ticking back higher or sort of weakening, um, you know, so people unhedged are losing some of that sort of interesting. Uh, great, and great for- from
0: a trading point of view, um, it's a really interesting setup just because volatility has been incredibly low in dollar yen, pretty much the lowest that it's ever been in history, uh, depending on how you measure it. So playing it through options is very attractive right now if if the trade works, um, just because you're able to buy these options for. Uh, for prices that, that almost you would barely ever see throughout history, there's maybe been one or two other times when when dollar-yen volatility has been this low.
1: Isn't that true for all currencies? Like, I, I was looking at a EFA currency chart, and like the roll, and I, I'm looking at longer-term time periods, but like I think the rolling three-year volatility on EFA currency, like the developed world equity basket, is something like an all-time low. I mean, like, or at least on a three-year basis for like the last thirty years, it's like near close to well, lows.
0: yeah, that's an interesting point because um, the the generally accepted reason for that is that. In the theory, in the finance theory, and this is also true in reality, the biggest driver of currency pairs is relative interest rates. So you know, money tends to flow to where the rates are higher, um, depending on the risk, and money tends to flow out when rates are lower. And if all the rates in the world are pretty much pinned to zero, then that doesn't give you a lot of room to maneuver in the currency space. Um, Now, there was this theory a while ago called the release valve theory, which was that Since rates aren't moving, the release valve for economic, uh, relative economic performance uh, should be the currency. But what ended up happening was with COVID and everything is that relative economic performance wasn't really a thing either because everyone just collapsed in March 2020 and then rebounded in a V or a K shape. And so you haven't really had a clear uh, relative performance story across different countries either because the data has been so wild uh, on the way down and on the way up. And now what we're seeing is a little bit of an emergence of some divergence in monetary policy. For example, New Zealand and uh, the Bank of England seem to be wanting to be a little bit more ahead of the curve. So perhaps that brings volatility back. But but you're right, volatility in FX has been extremely low, um, mostly uh, other than through the COVID crisis, it was very high. But uh, if you just take out that, the last couple of years have been pretty dead
1: we're talking with Brent Donnelly, president at Spectra Markets, author of The Alpha Trader. Uh and uh you know Brent and I share some time together in in Maine every every August this year it was the same. Brent, one of our our pastimes that that we've that we've uh done played some poker. Um you're going to taking all of the money at the poker tables in addition to the uh the currency markets, any lessons from, you know, what you've G- garnered why you like playing poker, what you've, how you sort of overlap your your poke, poker prowess, and I can attest, Brent uh, does clean clean up most of the time. Uh, so, any any lessons there from there to the trading community?
0: I will say, Sam Ryan's rivered us every single time this year. But, anyways, um, <laughs> there are a lot of similarities between uh, poker and trading, especially. And again, I think it's important to make the distinction that you made between investing and trading. In my opinion, they're just two completely different skills um, and two different activities that that require different thought processes and different decision-making processes. Um, but the, yeah, so poker. The if you read a bunch of poker books, generally the best approach is is called tight aggressive. So that means you don't play very many hands, but when you do have a good hand, you play very aggressively. So you wait, 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 and then you attack, and then you wait, wait, wait. Um, and I think almost everyone in trading would agree that that's the optimal way to trade as well. So the analog is if you're playing a lot of you know mediocre poker hands, you end up kind of chasing straights and chasing flushes and chasing you know low probability events. Kind of you're you're buying little lotto tickets all the time. And when when I'm trading badly or when anyone's trading badly, they tend to want to trade every single setup and every little move, every jiggle on the screen. Whereas the, the best strategy in trading and the best traders are able to just sit there flat doing nothing and then go nuts when they're, when there's a really good opportunity. So that's one thing. Um, I think another uh, similarity is good poker players can get beat by bad luck and then the next hand play with a rational mind. So for example, let's say you're at a casino and the guy next to you is drunk and you have a pair of aces, and he has 7-10 offsuit, and he goes all in. You obviously call with your aces, and the flop comes 7-7-10 or whatever, and, and he, he wins. A, a really good poker player would just kind of chuckle and go, you know, that's variance. That's, that happens once in a while. I know I was, say, whatever, 82% against his 18% to win that hand, and I lost, and that's just variance. Whereas a bad poker player will then get really angry and the next 10 hands will play poorly because that previous hand has affected their decision-making going forward. Um, And that's the same thing in trading. So there's a lot of variance, no matter how good you are, there's a lot of variance in trading. So if you lose money today and maybe, you know, you had a good idea to short the S&Ps and you got stopped out at one handle above the high and then it collapsed after that and that's bad luck – if you're a good trader, you understand that that's just variance and, and that's the way it is. And the next day you come in and you make good decisions again. Um, if you're not a good trader, you get angry and, and start pressing buttons and try to make your money back um, from the market. So that's another similarity. So separating each decision and being maintaining the ability to be rational as each event comes and goes. So in trading, each event, say, is it each day or each trade. In poker, it's each hand. But it's it's kind of the similar thing is to be able to keep an emotional or not. It's not even really an emotional even keel, but the ability to stay rational um, through what is going to be a lot of variance. So good poker players in the end win. And that's a fact like that's an empirical fact that has been proven in a lot of research um and same thing with traders um however good poker players go through bad runs and so do good traders so um you know being able to keep your mind on straight in those instances is, is really important
1: yeah it was i, I, I like your, your point on it's certainly a lot less fun to play less hands and to play tight you know if you're trying to have a well, good time you, you want to be involved in the action
0: because yeah. So many people. Um, so there is a, a, some studies of the physiology of trading, and in taking on risk releases dopamine in your in your brain, and people want the dopamine. It's like Pavlov's dogs or rats going to the little machine. Um, so the ability to or the, to restrain from over trading is is really really important because trading can be fun, and you know you have three really good days. So the opposite of getting on on tilt because something bad happened is some people will go on tilt when they do well. So after three or four days, they get really confident and then it's fun and you just start throwing money around for, for no reason. Um, so there, there are a lot of similarities in terms of like the stimulation that comes from trading um, and the stimulation that comes from poker is, can be kind of similar um, but hopefully not, not too similar uh, because what you need to do is, is not, be overstimulating yourself, and actually just be trying to make money. And there's there's a lot of um, I think there's a saying I, I can't remember who said it, but the market will give you exactly what you want. And and the the kind of subtext to that is that if you want to be entertained, you know you're going to have a lot of fun, but you're probably not going to make money. Um, so you know, do you want to be smart? Do you want to have fun, or do you want to make money? And a lot of people are on on the wrong part of that spectrum trying to be smart or or over trading for fun when really the objective is to know what your edge is, extract the money, and then get out.
1: When, in, I guess in times when maybe you had a tough year, and I, I think you – well, I don't want to steal too much of the thunder from the book, but in times of a tough year – how did you keep with coming back um, and sort of this not going on tilt and or giving up um, and sort of think about how you go through those tough times to get to the, the better times? Any secrets of your success that you, you'd point out there?
0: So one thing that helped me a lot was um, keeping statistics on my trading. Um, and that's, that's something I got from a book by a man named Ken Grant, which um, just to make a small side point, People love reading books about trading um, strategies and trade selection, but people don't read as many books about risk management because it's a little bit more boring. But again, actually similar to poker, money management is really one of the most, or if not the most important thing in trading. So anyways, from that risk management book, um, I, in around 2006, I, I started keeping pretty detailed statistics on my trading. And one thing that really helps you understand is that there's a lot of randomness on on any given you know day or week, and then the randomness, if you have skill, dissipates as you get a bigger sample size. So I started to see like after two or three years of collecting data, like it's not that weird for me to lose money five days in a row. So now when I lose money five days in a row, it just doesn't hurt as much, or it doesn't. It's not as dis like depressing on tilt. or you're not getting until. Yeah, cuz I'm just like, well, oh, this has happened a million times before, like that's variance and and life goes on. Um and it, it's a fine line between like not caring, cuz I al- I always care, but um but also kind of not caring in a way of, about individual. It's like the cliche of of focusing on on process and not on outcomes. And if you believe that you have an edge and that you believe that you have a sound process and you're following that process then you know the outcomes just kind of plop out at the end out of the machine, and and hopefully the outcomes are good. Um, but really, what you're controlling is the process. And I think keeping detailed statistics on my trading um, really helped me understand the ebbs and flows and and the probabilities around my trading. And then you know when I know that a down month is is a, is much more significant than a you know a down week or a down day. And so if I have a down month, then maybe I go, hmm, statistically these aren't that common, so maybe I should think about, like, is there something broken in my process or is there a mismatch between the way I'm trading and the market regime? Because a lot of times your process can be good, but you're just not reading the, the correct regime. So, you you know, you're trying to play breakouts, but it's a mean reverting market or, or that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, that definitely helped. I think experience in general just helps, too, because you just know... I mean, I worked at Lehman Brothers right up till September 15th, 2008, and you know those were pretty, pretty scary times in, in finance. And yet the sun came up every single day, you know, during that time and after that time. And I think you kind of realize with experience that you know tra- trading is important and your P&L is important, but at the same time every single day the sun comes up and you know you're <laughs> you're gonna have another opportunity to, to do what you need to do
1: and in, in, when you talked in the book you talk about sort of who's our more successful traders or is there and, and one of the interesting points was women are better traders than men um, I, I don't know if there's any data on women better poker players than men I know my wife would say in both cases it would be true if you let her give her get her own count start trading it she would she would say that's also true um, what what do you think what, what's the, the success story there anything on just the overall success of traders as well
0: sure so uh, that generally comes down to um it's a combination of depending on what literature you read. It's a combination of mostly overtrading. So men statistically trade a lot more than women. So overtrade. The more you trade, the more transaction costs you pay, and generally the worse your performance. That's like not always true. Obviously, you know there are high-frequency traders that do extremely well. But if you take a sample of a million Charles Schwab accounts, I'm just choosing Schwab at random. Um, if you take a, a sample of a million investor accounts, you'll see that men trade more often than women and trading is a drag on, on performance, especially in investment accounts. Um, and so that's really the primary driver. And then a second driver, which is a little bit less empirically, you know, 100 percent solid, but is generally shows up in the literature, is that women are less overconfident than men. Um, so the, the sort of negative and irrational and biased behavior that you get out of being overconfident, you don't see that as often. Everyone tends to be a little bit overconfident. Um, like 86% of all people think they're better than average drivers, which clearly is not, not mathematically possible. Um, so people in general tend to skew a little bit overconfident, but men skew more overconfident. And that, that again, tends to be, um, a reverse indicator for trading success.
1: Sort of final closing thoughts, Brent. Um, any other um, words of wisdom from your from your days? Things that you would you would point people to from Alpha Trade or any other any other things you want to close people with?
0: No, I think I would say to people, um, specifically to traders, but just in general, um, to be humble. You know, to understand that things change, and no matter how well you're doing today, tomorrow could be difficult, and that's just that's the way. Um, so try to be humble and and try to be as rational as possible. Understand what your biases are. If there's something that you can never go short, you probably shouldn't be trading that instrument because you're too biased. So understand, I mean, there's a, a, a laundry list of different ways you can be biased, but um, trying to be rational and, and staying humble. I think almost every really good trader that I know that's been like a PM at a hedge fund for 20 years, they're definitely not overconfident. They understand the market is ready to kick you in the face at any moment. And so no matter how well you're doing this month, um, you know, stay humble.
1: And uh, sir, so where can people, they want to get uh, subscribed to AMFX from Spectrum Markets. Where can they find your work?
0: Um, so the easiest way is probably just to go in to me through Twitter. Um, just put my name in Twitter. Um, but you can go to SpectrumMarkets.com as well. Um, and everything's there as well And then my book's on Amazon It's called Alpha Trader
1: We've been talking with Brent Donnelly Who is a president at Spectra Market It's been really interesting talking about his new book Alpha Trader, good friend from our days in Maine Brent, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Markets I'm Jeremy Schwartz I thank our producer, Patty Hall Our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. You can listen, listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast Have a great week, everybody <laughs>